Hello, my friends. My name is Madge. This is the MadgeCast, and this is uh, the podcast where we talk about how to think clearly in an Orwellian-leaning world. We had quite a week this week, a historic week. Friday was Inauguration Day, of course, and I was drowning my sorrows at the Wynn Buffet in Las Vegas. Um, I couldn't watch his speech because I was working, but honestly, I wouldn't have done that to myself anyway. I mean, we've all got to hold on to whatever shreds of sanity we can. We can't just be giving them away for free. Uh, I flew back to Colorado Friday night, and I won't lie, I cried for a bit, but I also got the dude sitting next to me to stop manspreading, so small victories. Uh, Saturday, though... Saturday was a big victory. Saturday was, um, I don't know how else to put it, it was a beautiful outpouring of goodness and light all over the world. My husband Rich and I marched in Denver along with uh, 200,000 of our close friends, and it was glorious. Uh, all, All over the world, we had millions of people coming together in peace and fellowship and hilarious signs to stand up for what we believe is right, that women's rights are human rights, that black lives matter, that love is love, that no human is illegal, and that science is real and climate change is happening. Um, But some folks, I think, um, you know, were kind of wondering why at a woman's march were we talking about racism, disability rights, climate change, immigration, or anything else other than stuff that impacts women's, women specifically? And the answer, of course, is intersectionality, which is what I'm going to spend the whole podcast talking about today. Intersectionality is defined as follows. The interconnected nature of social categorizations such as race, class, and gender as they apply to as they apply to a given individual or group regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. Now the concept of intersectionality can be a tricky one for nice middle class white people like me to grasp. And in fact, I had a conversation this week with a woman who is super sympathetic to progressive causes, but she didn't want to go to the march in her town because they spelled the word women as W-O-M-X-N and explained it thusly. The spelling of Women's March has been adapted to highlight and promote intersectionality in the movement for civil rights and equality. Intersectionality, I'm sorry, intersectionality acknowledges that different forms of discrimination intersect, overlap, and reinforce each other, and recognizes the impact of discrimination based not only on gender, but also race, sexual orientation, gender identity, nationality, faith, class, disability, and other backgrounds. And uh, the lady I was talking to had a big problem with this because she felt that women should be able to have their own march focused on issues that specifically impact women without having to circle in every other kind of oppression under the sun. And I mean, I guess I kind of get that, but I also think it's completely wrongheaded 
Because the concept of intersectionality, it doesn't just exist because some liberals got together in a room and thought it would be fun to screw with everyone's minds like that. It's because of, in reality, all forms of oppression are intrinsically entwined in the way they play out in someone's life. Let's look at a few examples. Let's say there's a black trans woman who gets the shit beat out of her on the street, which sadly happens all the damn time. And in this case, sexism, racism, and transphobia all come into play. Uh, classism also often plays a role in attacks like this because uh, most trans folks, especially trans folks of color, don't have the resources to present themselves like Caitlyn Jenner, you know? Um, but you know, you can't really say, well, 50% of this beating was because she was trans and 20% was because of sexism and 30% was because of racism. I mean, can you see how silly it is to even try to do that? Clearly a bunch of forms of oppression come into play in this one person's life in this one moment. So if we're going to have a march only for women's rights, are we marching for this person or no? Are we allowed to use feminism to fight for this person? Or do we need to push it over to the Black Lives Matter folks or the trans rights department to handle it? Another example, the wage gap between men and women, a classic feminist issue. White women currently make 87 cents to every white man's dollar, while black women make 65 cents and Latina women make 58 cents. So when we're fighting to correct the wage gap, where do we stop? Do we stop when white women are made whole or when all women are made whole? Example number three, rape. Again, generally considered to be a women's issue, and we talk a lot about it, especially on college campuses. In fact, most of the high-profile rape cases we discussed are focused on white women and girls, like uh, the Brock Turner abomination. But clearly, rape doesn't just happen to white women. Black women suffer just as high, if not higher, rates of sexual assault. And men are raped every day, too, especially in prison, and especially if they're not straight. And at the same time, black people are incarcerated at much higher rates than white people, which then puts them at a higher risk for being assaulted sexually. So when we're fighting against rape, where do we draw that line? Again, how concerned are we about affluent white women getting raped at college compared to black women and men being assaulted in prison? How concerned are we about sex workers being raped or folks with disabilities? When you look a little closer, rape is not just an issue that impacts women. We can't just draw a line and say, here's where the women's issue stops and the race issue or the disability issue or the class issue starts. When we do that, we actually are capitulating to forces of racism, ableism, classism, and the like. So when I laid all this on this woman who didn't want to share her women's march with um, folks who were concerned about racism and other forms of bias, she was really not happy with me. In fact, she got quite defensive and she said that I was missing her point entirely and that this is less about intersectionality than it is the fact that women are expected to put everyone else's needs above their own. 
But to me, her argument is exactly the same as the one that I talked about in episode two when I went off on folks who think that the liberal cause has been hurt by quote-unquote identity politics and we should leave them behind. Because the mechanism is the same, right? If we have a platform of issues that impact all women and we start pulling things out based on the fact that we don't think it's specifically a quote-unquote woman's issue, all we're going to be left with is a pile of stuff that affluent white women care about. If we're talking about rape, we need to talk about all the people who are impacted by rape. If we're talking about the wage cap, the wage gap, we need to talk about everyone who has one. And newsflash, compared to white men, black men have a worse wage gap than white women do. If we're talking about reproductive rights, we need to talk about the folks who have less access to health care based on their class their race, or their disability. And yet, it seems like a lot of white women don't want to talk about any of this. We mostly want to make feminism about us. And this is something that we have done throughout history. Now, personally, I don't think it always makes sense to sort of hold people from the past to modern standards of morality, because standards of morality change over time. I mean, George Washington was a pretty outstanding person in a lot of ways, and he also owned slaves, and that's just a fact. And just like that, the facts of feminist history are that we have always excluded women of color specifically for a very long time. Like, in everyone runs around saying, oh, women got the right to vote in 1920. No, women did not get the right, the right to vote in 1920. White women did. And they stood against people of color to get it. At least many of them did. Uh, For instance, Susan B. Anthony broke faith with her ally, Frederick Douglass, because she believed white women deserved the right to vote before black men. This is a direct quote. I will cut off this right arm of mine before I ever work or demand the ballot for the Negro and not the woman. And okay, you know, fine. Her priority was white women. But I'm just saying the priority of feminism has always been white women, which kind of makes sense because the priority of white people in general has always been white people. And yeah, that's just where we are as a culture. America's racist. It's always been racist. And uh, it's also ableist and homophobic and exclusionary in a million other ways. And we take all of that stuff in. Every day we breathe it in and out all throughout our lives. So it would actually be pretty surprising if we white women weren't racist. But here's the thing. As white women, we are in a unique position because we experience both sides of the coin. We experience oppression based on sex, and we also experience privilege based on race. And by and large, we side with our race before we side with our sisters. I mean, geez, 53% of white women voted for Trump. Enough said, right? But the, the weird thing is, is that even within the progressive movement, we side with our race over our sisters. And intersectional feminism aims to put an end to that. Because in truth, in fact, in real life, as it unfolds day to day in the lived experience of everyone besides middle class white women, sexism is inseparable from racism. It's inseparable from classism and homophobia and ableism and all of the other forms of unconscious bias that uh, we have in our culture. 
And you know, a lot of us white women going around, go around being pissed off at men for not getting it, right? I mean, I know I do. I get pissed off at men for not understanding that even if they, as individuals, aren't creeps, there are enough male creeps that every woman has a multitude of horror stories about them. I get mad at them for not comprehending the microaggression, the microaggression involved in telling us to smile all the time, or for not seeing the sexism in the way they like to explain shit to us that we already know. It's infuriating. And as a woman, I feel like I have been learning about the history of men, reading books written by men, watching movies that star mostly men since the moment I was born. So I have a lot more perspective on their experience than they have on mine. So many times I've wished for nothing more than a man to just shut the fuck up and listen to me for a minute because they don't know what it's like to be a woman and experience sexism. And I do. But if they can shut their mouths and open their minds, I will tell them about it and I will help them understand where I'm coming from. And then I won't feel like I need to slam their dick in a car door anymore. So I say all this because the exact same mechanism comes into play around race most often, but other unconscious biases as well, except I'm on the other side, right? So more than once I have said something boneheaded, or not stood up against a racist statement. And a friend of mine has been like, yo, Madge, that shit you just did was racist. And I have gotten really upset because, you know, I'm a nice person. I'm a progressive. And, you know, I didn't mean it that way. That wasn't my intention. You're totally taking it wrong. And why are we making everything about race? Why can't we all come together? But in this scenario... I've come to see that I am the clueless man who doesn't get why I can't compliment a woman's body and always expect her to be pleased about it. In this scenario, I am the dude who says, man, I got raped by a parking ticket the other day. In this scenario, I'm the guy who thinks that equality is already happening. So why are women so pissed off? Do you see what I'm saying here? I do not know what it's like to be a Latina or a black woman or a Native American woman, but they have been focused on the white experience their whole lives, all of the history that they've learned, all of the culture that they've consumed. 90% of it is about white people. I mean, our whole culture is centered on whiteness, mostly white maleness, to the point that anyone who isn't a white male Uh, is considered to be a special interest group, even if they are the majority, like women. So as a white woman, I have experience being both oppressed and oppressor. I face challenges from being a woman, and at the same time, I've benefited from being white. I mean, I've been raped, and I've also done a bunch of drugs and committed a bunch of crimes and have been given a pass for it in a way that people of color just don't. I mean, I've had weed in my car and run a red light and been pulled over, and I just got a warning. Meanwhile, so many black folks are pulled over for doing absolutely nothing and wind up fucking dead. And when I, when I really start to let that in, that so many people in the world experience oppression unlike anything I've ever witnessed, it, it makes me a little less territorial about feminism, right? makes me a little less particular about what I'm allowed to march for in a women, woman's march, eh?
So over the last few years, since Black Lives Matter came on the scene and started shedding light on all of these police brutality cases, I have been trying to educate myself on matters of race and privilege specifically. I mean, the tippy-top part of my brain always sort of got it, but in a glossed-over, very superficial kind of way. But when I started digging in, I came across the teachings of a woman named Robin D'Angelo, who uh, is the one who coined the phrase white fragility, which is this response that white people tend to have when you tell them that their actions are racist. They think that they can't be um, that they can't be a racist because they're a good person. They feel like being called a racist is like the worst thing that can happen. Um, Meanwhile, people are dying because of racism. So little perspective, white folks. Anyway, something that Robin D'Angelo said that really stuck with me was she was talking about a group discussion she was doing with a room of black folks. And she asked them, um, what would happen if white people were just willing to be coachable on matters of race? Like, instead of getting defensive and angry and breaking down because we think we're good people and good people can't be racist, what if we were just willing to be coached? And the black people in that room told her it would be revolutionary. That is the word they used, revolutionary. So this week on the podcast, my request of white people and specifically white women is, how about when someone points out a way that you're behaving or thinking that is racist or exclusionary in some other way? How about you just try to be coachable? How about you just try to act the way you wish men would act when you try to explain sexism to them? How about if you try not to get defensive, try not to poke holes in the argument or tell the person coaching you all the reasons why you think they're wrong, all the reasons that you didn't mean it, Um, How about you stop trying to hide behind good intentions and just take the input, take the feedback, consider it, think about it, sit with it, let yourself be uncomfortable with it, let it into your heart and see what happens. I mean, it doesn't matter if we mean to be racist, right? It's like if you stomp on someone's foot on accident, their foot is still hurt. So, um... Intention here doesn't really matter. And also, you know, this whole idea that if you're a good person, you can't be racist. And if you're racist, you can't be a good person. It's just not true. At this point, in this culture, at this time in history, racism, along with sexism and all the other isms, are just standard issue software installed in each of our brains as we're growing up in this world. And if we're going to shift that, we need to own it. That's the first step. Own it. So um, let's just try to have some humility, okay? Let's not think that whiteness is the default and everyone else is some subjective, hysterical, special interest group. Let's just all try to be coachable. And I will be right there with you trying to make myself less hard, less defensive, and more open to input from people with experiences different from mine. And I think about it in terms of possibility as well. I mean, white women make up the largest group in America by population. 
So that means if we can get this right, if we can learn to love solidarity more than we love our white privilege, we can tip the scales of history. All it takes is an understanding that unconscious bias doesn't make you a terrible person unless you deny it and let it fester. So let's try to take, make our feminism as intersectional as we can. Let's develop some humility and listen to our sisters of color, especially because they are the experts on oppression in America. And if we can be coachable on this and coach each other into doing better and being better, we will be able to join together in a new way and build the just and equal world that we all say we want to see. Okay, so that's my white lady rant. And, you know, I direct it as myself, at myself as well. Uh, everything I say in this podcast, I direct at myself and I say and put down um, in a recording because I need to listen to it and remember it too. If you marched yesterday, I hope that um, you can help keep that beautiful energy flowing by standing together against all the forces of oppression, not just the ones that personally impact you and me. Lots of love to you all. Stay strong.